hospitality. I won't allow it. Drunken. Turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! Alexander Nash and as always is Bud Spencer's main stunt double. It's Hank. References keep getting weirder and weirder as the weeks go on. Not really. How does Conan O'Brien introduce Andy? Uh, he doesn't. Andy's just on the couch. I wish that was me. I wish I was just on the couch. Well, Welcome I to Death by DVD. It's a podcast. I have to introduce whose voice is whose. The smooth sounds of Hank. Uh, Bud Spencer's stunt double. That's a good one. People might have to Google that. That makes them research, look into things. And we're an informative show, if anything. We've got the beats. Wait, no, that's a different thing. That's We've got the... Reference, is it not? It is, that was. I was going to sing it, and then I decided I'm not singing on this episode. I don't want to... We, ha we haven't started our freak musical quite yet. One of these days, I've wanted to do it for 10 years. I've wanted to do a, a full musical where we sing absolutely the whole reviews. But uh, we're going to need some cocaine for that, I think. It's going to be a little bit. I'm going to need probably some opium. Opium? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> opium 18, will help. 1880s Arizona? Where am I going to find opium? <laughs> Afghanistan? That's a stretch. Oh, beautiful, beautiful Afghanistan. I uh, leads me into actually talking about movies. Welcome to Death by DVD, where we occasionally talk about movies. I was watching the uh, Richard Stanley documentary. I bought it from Severin for the Vinegar Syndrome sale. Funnily enough, I bought a Severin DVD from Vinegar Syndrome. And there's a lot of Richard Stanley uh, just kind of ranting on that. He talks a lot about going to Afghanistan. And I brought up on the Richard Stanley retrospect that he probably killed some people. Yeah, he did. He he fully uh, uh, owns up to that. He shot some Russians, man. Richard Stanley is absolutely Rambo personified, kind of. I wouldn't call him Rambo. <laughs> Maybe Rambo 3 Rambo. Um, no, he's more Red Scorpion. Yeah, he's, that's a he's good almost one. like a double agent. And it's odd how he really just kind of went insane to become what he became, that he fully, I mean, you hear anybody talk about Richard Stanley, it's usually in a really negative light, that he's um, crazy. He's unstable and very, very crazy. I don't think so. I think he knows what he's doing. He just he's doesn't have the same. He just doesn't have the facilities to get it done the way people feel it should be done. He does not live in a common reality with the rest of us, which is perfectly fine. That doesn't mean it's like, you're crazy. No, he just operates on a different level. It's not like schizophrenia. It's like, no, I figured out most of the universe at this point. Listen to me. 
once the enlightened man becomes enlightened, they require nothing more, something, something, David Lynch. I don't know, that whole thought process. Uh, once you find fulfillment, you never need to be fulfilled again. He kind of went crazy in Australia and, I don't know, found the meaning of life in the jungle, living with pigmen. <laughs> Is that a Val Kilmer reference? No, he just he left the set when he was fired and went out to the jungle and disappeared. He was supposed to leave the country and didn't. He was kicked out pretty much by the uh, production company and went out and lived in the jungle. And they found him a couple months later taking a bath in, in this river, just smoking massive amounts of pot. I assume they were pigmen. My uh, my reference was facetious. Oh, yeah. No, I got it. Val Kilmer. Um, what a cunt. Welcome to cunt. Death by DVD, Val What Kilmer. a weird Christian scientist cunt. He definitely doesn't have cancer. He'll tell you that. He gets really Never pissed. Never did. Have a hole in my throat. Never had cancer, though. Yeah, I didn't go to Michael Douglas's pussy doctor and get, because Michael Douglas claims he got cancer from eating pussy. Um, so he, I guess he went to a gynecologist to get that throat cancer fixed. I assume so. But dump bump. Yeah, what a dick, Michael Douglas. And, uh... And, and everybody else we mentioned except Richard Stanley. All right. Do we want to do a recently seen? Yeah, because if not, we're just going to keep going into Val Kilmer jokes. Uh, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first because my movie is, it should have been on last week's show, which was the greatest movies of all time. My movie is a sequel because the first one's not that good. Snake Eater 2, The Drug Bust from 1989 by George Escher Bomber, the famous... George Escher Bomber, you know Isn't who he is. The, um, the black guy nerd from Revenge of the Nerds in it yep. as well? Yeah, Larry, right. Larry B. Scott as Speedboat. This movie stars Lorenzo Lamas as Snake Eater. He's some sort of badass. They don't really, he's, he was in Vietnam and he, he eats has, snakes. he eats snakes and he's got a lot of weapons. He's trying to take down the city's worst drug kingpin and he gets framed for, well, he doesn't get framed. He kills a bunch of drug dealers and he goes to jail for it. His attorney gets him, the uh, the old insanity plea, and he gets sent to an insane asylum where he is strapped to a wheelchair and has to fight cripples. It's fantastic. And then eventually him and this black guy, Larry B. Scott, named Speedboat because he talks really fast, and somewhat a very bigoted display of uh, African-Americans, a very stereotypical, nasty display of people. Uh, they save the day with a lot of shooting and and lorenzo llamas takes off his shirt a lot it doesn't there's not a lot of sense harvey atkins in it um john palelo's in it and that's about it you should see it for no reason outside of it's kind of fun if you're really fucked up like smoke a bunch of weed and then sit down and watch this if you have el rey network the robert rodriguez channel i guarantee you it's on like seven times a week and that's why i saw it how many snakes are eaten in the film Unfortunately, none. It's very misleading. And you would think Snake Eater 2, he would at least eat two snakes. Twice as many. Yeah. Twice and the, as many snakes. The first movie, he eats no snakes either. And this is a hard turn because the first movie is a very, very nasty exploitation film. Like, it is a shot on shitio redneck exploitation, living in the bayou, shooting a bunch of people for no reason movie. And then this one has cripple fights and a very racist description of African Americans. <laughs> It sounds like uh, when Sylvester Stallone did like that lockup movie and Van Damme had done Death Warrant, there was like a 
weird glut of prison exploitation action films where a wrongly convicted man must fight his way out of the criminal element and reunite with his son or daughter, depending. Yeah, and this one, it was Snake Eater needed to reunite with his stockpile of weapons he stole from the U.S. Marine Corps to shoot a bunch of drug dealers. <laughs> America! Not bad. Hank gives it, uh, I'll give it one star. <laughs> one star. Not uh, bad. Check it out. I'm no uh, Roger Ebert. You know, my one star reviews don't mean it's the word. I mean, he gave Brown Bunny. I don't even think he gave Brown Bunny a star. I think that was a zero star. It's uh, not really a movie. It's an art exercise. So I don't know how you can like critically rate it. Yeah. It, yeah. You can't really give it cult points or anything systematically. Good luck. Give Brown Bunny a zero and five cult points. This is not a good movie at all. It's but. not really a movie per se, like you just said. I mean, it's, it's Vincent Gallo driving around in a fucking truck, and he goes to a racetrack. Yeah, For a fucking hour. <laughs> and I get where Roger Ebert came from with it, but I do feel he was picking on Vincent a little bit. I he think was. it. Yeah, I think it was in, in nastiness, and it wasn't a fair review. All right, I will talk about what I saw this week, and I've broken my rule, Hank. I broke it. I got involved in binge-watching a television show, which I hate, but I had nothing else to watch this week, so I started binge-watching Bates Motel on Netflix. Oh, man. That's did, great. Did you watch Bates? I, I watched it while it was on. I, I never brought it up with you because you hate TV. I enjoy Bates Motel. I thought it was a great show. Okay. I have some things to say about Bates Motel. I haven't finished it. I'm on, like, the fifth season, Ooh, and that's another— reason I'm watching it is um, because it's five seasons and done and fucking 50 episodes and I'll be done with it and I'll never have to go back to it. I won't have to stretch it out over fucking six weeks. Got it done in like a little less than a week. Okay. The interpersonal relationship of the prequel nature of the show is interesting of Norman and his mother, although they've tended to paint her more as she's a little bit crazy and not an overbearing mother and the the personality he develops of his mother is kind of more shrewd and or like shr shrill and a little bit crazier which i never viewed the character feel, of mother psycho but that's not a problem i feel norman's personification of norma is what he wants his mother to be as she's yeah. more uh more of a hippie type i mean more of a, a i don't want to say loose in the term of sexuality but she's just more of a a looser grip on well, reality the, person in the original psycho franchise mother was kind of obviously the problem and norman was just kind of put upon as a child and yeah he like she really fucked him up and in this show it's more she the fucks him up a little bit but is norman is just fucking crazy and a lot of other things fuck him up um i like vera farmiga in the show she is excellent um hot as fuck too i don't i'm attracted to vera farmiga i don't know what to say um but you've not watched The Departed in the last 10 years. No, she still looks good in the fucking Conjuring movies when she's playing fucking the Warren chick who she, she uh, looks nothing like nothing at all. Funnily enough, bringing up her playing an, uh, a non domineering mother character, she's cast and has, I guess, filmed. I, I don't know if filming is completed or not, but is in the Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel as Mama Soprano, Livia Soprano. So it's and that is a awful miserable character just one of the nastiest characters and 
I think motion history. I mean, she's just awful. So this is going to be a really cool twist to see her play. Somebody just nasty. Yeah. She's well, really going to have to bust it. She's excellent in the show. I think, uh, what's that kid's name? Freddie Highmore playing Norman Bates. He's really good in the show. And I really like the way that their relationship is being portrayed. And I find that interesting. Oh man. What's the sheriff's name? He has such a great Alex name. Romero. Yeah. I always, uh, is that as good? The, there's somebody that has a really ridiculous name in that show that I go bananas over and I can't remember it now, but is it chick? No, I do love, um, Ryan Hurst. He's a really great actor and the character, it, it gets even better toward the, the end of the show. I don't want to give anything away for yeah. you. Though. Well, like <clears throat> all the, like, Everything that I've seen so far in the show, and I understand it's a television show and you have to add elements to it. Uh, also, though, before I get into any of that, I really like the um, aspect of the show where they've it's modern times, but yet everyone, a lot of people still dress like it's like the 1960s. And like most of the media that's shown is like tele on the television stuff is all black and white movies. And we don't talk about kind of old modern culture other than cell phones mostly. So I find that kind of an interesting way of like bridging that gap between the 1960s and like not doing a period um, style prequel and just kind of, you know, rebooting it for a new generation. I'm fine with all that. A lot of the wraparound material, though, in the seasons is just what the fuck does drug dealers? Yeah, like a town that's funded by um, like weed profits and all the, the weird mafia stuff like the, the weed mafia stuff and like how the town is laundering money and Norman's half brother. Suddenly half the cast of sons of anarchy shows up and it becomes sons of anarchy for like a season. And it's just like a bunch of random weird sub stories. Cause we have to pad out. What I find interesting is the Bates core characters of Norma and Norman. I find their story interesting. And a lot of the rest of this is just padding. It's just like, I don't care. Like, you know, the chick character is fine. I I don't have a problem with the character. I don't have a problem with how the show is written for what it is. But as far as Psycho goes, what the fuck does any of this have to do with Psycho or the town that Psycho takes place in? Because it's really just about Boy and his mother and how that relationship can get skewed and how, you know, schizophrenics and people with multiple personalities, blah, 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 blah. It has nothing to do with laundering drug money or the Asian slave sex market. Like, what the fuck? What is, what, why is this in here at all? But again, they had to get five seasons out of it, so you have to add something. So I, I don't mind that overall. It's like the Evelyn and James subplot of Twin Peaks season two yeah, or the just, Ben Horn Confederacy subplot. It's just, it's there for the purposes of having a television show, which have you... I, w- I could honestly take the Bates Motel and cut it down to like a two season series and make it just as interesting. It could have the, the main character. Yeah. Dealing directly just with the uh, intellectual property from Psycho, it could have been a mini series, you know, a four or five parter just about Norman and his relationship. I like the stepbrother, but it is like the, it's a night. It's a nice dynamic, especially trying to give it a modern touch, adding a stepbrother character. And then, uh, the stepbrother's background and and where he comes from. It's a child of fucking incest. Okay. Yeah, okay. I didn't know if you'd gotten there or not, but it's it. Uh, I, well, five, man. 
Yeah, it allows you to at least understand uh, mentally where the, the, the mother character is coming from and some of the things that Norman has to deal with that furthers his psychosis. Have you gotten to Marion Crane? Has that happened no, yet? I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I'm like three or four episodes into the fifth season. That's and I, I like where it's going because we're focusing more on like classic Norman Bates stuff and it's focusing on his psychosis and him keeping his it's it's becoming more of a horror movie for me and less of a soap opera which i really enjoy without giving anything away uh, the final season is handled excellently and how a final season should be handled and the marion crane bits and tying in the ending of psycho well not even the ending like the the beginning and middle of psycho ties into the ending of this and it's it's all very fluent it works and it's clever and that's what's really what I appreciated about it was when it ended, it wasn't one of those situations that, well, well it didn't turn out the way I liked it. You already kind of know how it's going to end. You should at this point. And so that you've got is from an interesting aspect that you bring up because I, what they have succeeded in with their handling of these characters is by like season three or four, I guess it's season four when uh, Norma gets together with the, the sheriff and Normans and the institution getting help. You really want this to like play out a different way than you know it's going to go. It's like, but I like all these characters, and I want Norma to be happy. She's finally found love, and fucking Norman's getting help. Maybe he doesn't have to kill people. And no, we got we got to get to the deep dark. I've got my mother stuffed in the basement aspect of it too. So you know it's going there. You just don't want it to, which is a success for me. You're able to endear the characters to me to like actually appreciate them and don't want to see them go to their ultimate end that you know they're going to. And there's a lot of subtle things, too. I mean, like, they don't just show that Norman is into taxidermy. It is a constant reminder that Norman... One. Yeah, and the candy corn that is in display at the very beginning where Anthony Perkins offers this bag of candy corn, he snacks on it constantly throughout the show that there's a lot of nods and appreciation toward uh, Hitchcock and Robert Block's novel of what Psycho is. And that's, I mean... I was I really thought this was a stupid show and had no interest in seeing it whatsoever. And my mom got really into it and begged me to sit and watch an episode. And uh, I think I had conned her into watching Twin Peaks if I watched this. And I ended up just, you know, wow, we have to I have to see every episode. This is pretty cool. I really like this. And I wish American Horror Story would be a little bit more like Bates Motel. I've lost touch with American Horror Story on. Yeah, I stopped watching season three. Yeah, The Witches was my end, and then I started Freak Show, and it just was a bit... Well, none of it looked that interesting to me at a certain point, because... Yeah, I, I lost complete th- contact. I didn't care. Each season out of the first three seasons, at the end, I was ultimately just disappointed with how everything turned out. And that's what really, like... they like Especially in season great. three, they got a lot of really interesting concepts going. I was like, oh, I'm interested in seeing this going. And then they just keep adding extra stuff. Like, now there's a ghost of an axe murderer. And this episode, we have zombies. And I don't think you should write TV that way, personally. Because something like Stranger Things season three, that's written like an extended movie. It has a beginning, middle, and end. And each season is like that with Stranger Things. And I think more series need to be like that because they're going to continue on with Stranger Things season four. And you can pick it up from where you left it off with a few questions and things like that. But a lot of these shows, it's just you can tell they're hunting for something to do next season. Where are we going to take this? We can, well, let's just pad this out more and more and more. It's like, no, you can have beginning, middle and stories 
each season and pick the characters up with a new sort of thing the next season. You don't have to just drag out this really long extended story that just goes nowhere. Well, I think with Netflix especially and how you've just described things being made and how TV shows should be shot, this is almost what guys like Martin Scorsese and David Lynch have been begging for for years. You know, these guys are putting out two and a half, three hour movies and people are complaining, I can't sit here, I can't do this, but now people are sitting and wanting to binge watch an entire series in one night, wait a whole year and then watch 14 hours again in one night, call out of work, and these guys are you know, just standing there with their hands in the air, like, well, what the fuck? I tried to make a five-hour version of my movie, and you told me it was too long. I mean, even Quentin Tarantino, to a uh, uh, respect, well, I mean, if he had his way, I'm sure his newest picture would be five fucking hours, and I'm sure the original cut of it is. Well, does it tell you anything that The Hateful Eight is now on Netflix broken into hour-long segments for, like, a four- or five-hour TV show? Oh, and I... It's broken into episodes. Bringing up Quentin Tarantino, we were corrected uh, by Manny Serrano, bastard. Apparently, there was backstories and all sorts of stuff filmed for Kill Bill and anime with every single character, and it was cut, and they chose to just keep Lucy loose. So Tarantino well, okay. did do it all. At least That's he did it fine. all. He did do it all, but then he made an editing mistake because if you eliminate all their backstory stuff that you shot, you need to eliminate hers as well because it throws off the pacing of the film narratively it does not work in the film that he released so if you're going to eliminate like most of all their backstories but keep hers why because it just it completely threw the flow of the movie off and i feel tarantino chose to keep it in because he paid a bunch of money to a historic anime animator to get it done because and no one will tell him no yeah. Well, that's why. that's the problem. Somebody probably told him no, and he you know still gets his way and kept something in. But if you're going to release a, a two-hour, two-part movie, and it comes out in two parts at this point, what, what, what begins and ends it? Who cares? You know, Tarantino will say David Lynch is up his own ass, but and he, and he is. He, he is, but so is Tarantino, and he has been. Tarantino came out of the box with Reservoir Dogs up his own ass, and it's yeah. fine. It's it just... just like, okay, the, the example I'm going to use is Nicholas Winding Refn has a TV show on Amazon Prime. Right now, it's called, um, Jesus, I can never remember the title because it's vaguely stupid. It's like Too Old to Die Young, I think is the name of it. And it's it's Refn, so it's shot fucking awesome. It is fucking beautiful to look at. Um, the problem is it's Refn, so he did not concentrate one bit on the story. Each episode is about an hour and a half long. So overall, and he even admitted this in the press that I just wanted to make a 13 hour movie that they've broken into Again, segments. So he made a 13 hour movie that there's not much story for. It's just, it's a lot of crooked cops, um, underground, you know, like uh, mafia type organizations, uh, stuff like that. And like, and Billy Baldwin plays a, a cokehead, which is awesome. Billy Baldwin's great in the show. But overall, it's just... And with in Refn's style, there are literally 10-second pauses in the middle of like most scenes of dialogue. After every line, there's 10 seconds for the room tone to take over. And I get the point. 10 seconds is excessive, asshole. A 10-second pause between each line of dialogue is just you jerking off at least have the conversation flow a little bit, man. 
Well, that's what's kind of, I mean, it brings me back to my point, and I almost think it's hysterical that with streaming and Stranger Things being the best example, I've not seen season two or three, but I enjoyed it for what it is. It's just really not my style. I'll get to it. I'll eventually see it all, but it plays out like a movie, and you've got these guys like David Lynch and Tarantino and Refn that want to make 13-hour-long movies, and then they get the opportunity to, and you get Twin Peaks season three. You get 18 hours that largely... It makes sense, but man, it's it makes sense in a David Lynch fashion, and that's almost abusing what you've been bitching about that you've wanted to do for 40 years. You've been saying you wanted to do this. Now you get to, with no... Buddy saying anything you all you get all the money you want to do it with everybody that you want to do it with that's alive or not retired and you still give us dougie jones for 17 hours like that's kind of abusing your own point i feel well like at least stranger things has a, a flow I, I, it's a hard fact to listen to but editing is what makes or breaks a film it really is. And sometimes you need to listen to editors and sometimes you need to listen to an audience. To re- it's not just your vision because your vision, like a two hour, two hour, two twenty minute, like fucking horror film that has almost no story to it and has a very basic plot. Does it really need to be that long? You, I mean, you can convey the same thing with editing. You just have to you have to lose scenes that you love. I understand you love this scene. But it has to go. Because it's not adding to the narrative of the story you're trying to tell. It's just, it's additional bullshit. And it's the same thing with television. It's just you're adding a lot of additional information that, okay, prime example is Bates Motel. Um, there, in a season, like Norma's doing like dirty deals with the, was Bob Price or whatever the fuck's name is. Um, and Bob digs a fucking ditch in her yard under the assumption it's a pool, even though it's like a 20, Eight oh yeah foot deep pit <laughs> other than norman stashing a body there what the fuck was the point in that like pit digging there is no point it went nowhere you never found out well maybe he's going to like bury her and her whole family and there's why'd he dig it 28 feet deep what was the point other than to him making a good faith effort of sending somebody over to dig a pool why not just have them dig the fucking pool why do a spiteful i don't know it's just you see what i mean it's just like that's filler. It's filler. It's it's not necessary to the story you're trying to tell. It's you padding out 10 episodes for the season. Well, that's and one of I the just, I just don't believe in that personally. That's one of the things that I've heard and read is fairly impressive with Stranger Things is that even the filler manages to be a pretty respective part of the storytelling and develops the characters accurately. And like not picking on it, but just uh, I, I've been told I favor David Lynch a bit too much. So I'll pick on him a little bit tonight. You look at something he has full creative control over, like Twin Peaks Season 3. If you're a diehard fan and up his ass, sure, you'll get it. To the average person that was just trying to connect to something from 26 years ago, it's baffling. It's it's literally a madman that was given way too much creative control and made uh, static for 17 hours. Well, and it's, it is what it is. an example that I know you can relate to. Look at Aliens. When you watch the original theatrical cut compared to James Cameron's director's cut, James Cameron's director's cut, I'm not saying it's bad or whatever, but like the Sentinel gun scenes, you were able to remove those from the film, and for years no one knew any different that that scene was in there 
and the story still played out perfectly fine, almost the exact same way. So the Sentinel gun scene, I'm not saying it's a bad scene or even James Cameron's director cut isn't maybe a little bit more superior in ways, but it's just like editing really does help. It it helps your movie not be three hours because it's just like the Sentry gun scenes ultimately pointless. It doesn't like it doesn't fit to anything greater in the story that you're telling in Aliens at all. You know what's funny is out of the entire James Cameron director's cut, there's only one scene in the entire movie that uh, was added back in that I would have kept, and it's where Vasquez and Hudson are setting up the sentry guns, and they're walking back through a corridor, and the scene cuts to them closing the door and Vasquez seal-locking it. You could have cut the whole sentry gun scene out, but it just shows the tension between, and it's when Hudson first mentioned that he's picking up something, and they... You're reading it wrong. And it just starts the scene before the lights go out a little bit earlier, and it's like three seconds. The movie still would have had its original runtime. Yeah, but Cameron knows that. I mean, that's why his cut went out the way it did. His director's cut, I think, was just, here's the footage. I mean, I'm sure there's much more stuff to all of his films that he's thrown away. And on the other hand, I will even say this about James Cameron, The Abyss, a lot of that stuff in the director's cut is actually necessary to what's going on to the greater narrative of the story he's trying to tell. It's just, you have to be selective what you edit. Cause like all the tidal wave shit that's going on in the abyss is kind of essential to the plot of what the story you're trying to tell about humanity and being nice to each other and anti-war and all that shit. And without that, it kind of, it makes the, the ending doesn't resonate as much and it doesn't make as much sense. Like our last few shows, I think that idea was a bit too liberal for, most audiences, you know, oh, they'll save the world. The aliens are going to help us. What? Fuck them. We well, need independence. It's a fucking story because that's the story he's telling. And, there, and without it, it just becomes a story about humanity between a couple of people and some aliens. Yeah, but uh, let's at look like, at the two different alien movies here. The Abyss and Independence Day. American audiences want Independence Day. They want us to go kill the aliens and Randy Quaid save the day. They don't want us to shake hands in the polar ice caps to stop melting and whales to not die. People don't yeah, care. Yeah, but Americans are fucking stupid and mostly with their cinema. I All like right, we, We're rambling. We are well, rambling. The, the Abyss is a good, uh, a good rambling point because it's about weird little squishy things that live in the bottom of the ocean that uh, Ed Harris... I'm just trying to segue. Ed Harris uh, can dance. I don't know. Thinking about creep show now. Um, the angel alien fish and the abyss kind of look like gremlins or something. That's why we're doing gremlin ripoff films tonight. Well, How's we got a, a, a couple people have made notion. You know, this is the new Death by DVD. So if you're just finding us on Spotify or iTunes or Podcast Attic or any other place that you might have found us at or Transistor FM, our new host, and are hearing this for the first time, some of our older fans missed uh, just the goofy nature of this show, the whole exploitation point and us rambling. We've not really rambled for a... A long time since since we were doing live shows, we've been doing a lot of serious subject matter and tackling some stuff that we haven't because we kind of got bored doing Goofy. And now we're back to it because we miss it. We need Goofy Rubber Monsters. And we did the greatest hits of Death by DVD, which was a serious segment. We really wanted to talk about movies we're passionate about. And somebody suggested, oh, Ghoulies, you got to do greatest movies of all time. You got to do Ghoulies. And now, okay, here you go. We're going to do, Ghoulies will will sometime be brought up. We got all sorts of little rubber creatures. And the whole wraparound, I mean, the whole point is gremlins 
weirdly changed monster movies. It changed the format. It changed how people made rubber monster movies. And throughout the entire rest of the decade, if you got a monster movie, it was probably a ripoff of Gremlins. Plus, it's easier to make a small puppet than it is to do a large monster suit on people. So people ran with that shit. Well, I mean, looking even at 80s monster movies, just off the top of my head, you've got like some Don Dohler stuff, but like Monster Squad's really the biggest rubber monster movie, Predator, uh, but that's a sci-fi action movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, they're splitting some hairs there, Hank, a little bit. But, yeah. Um, uh... <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a trend that I guess you can say Steven Spielberg slash Joe Dante created after Gremlins came out. And it was a Chris Columbus script, and initially Gremlins was a much darker script with, I think, Billy Peltzer finds his mother's head in the fireplace in the original script or something like that. It's some, something really yeah, dark. It was going for a, a hard R exploitation grindhouse kind of feel instead of a family-friendly Christmas, yeah. Christmas movie with Dick Miller in it. And then Spielberg got hold of it and said, oh, hold the fucking phone on that. I can't make a movie like that. Well, I don't um, even think so much Spielberg because he wanted at the same time to make E.T. and Poltergeist kind of the same movie, you know, a really rough adult science fiction yeah, thriller. It's not so. in his nature, though. Like Steven Spielberg, just he does. He, he has that intention. He can make intense movies, but they have to be drama. I don't think Steven Spielberg knows shit about horror. I just don't think he has a stomach for it. I just he's just one of those guys. I don't really like horror films, but he's great at other things. I mean, he made Jaws for Christ's sake, which is one of the ultimate horror films. But well, you know, at the I end think of the you, day, it's more of a character piece in Jaws. I think it might be a little bit backward that he he loves horror and he's all about he's horror. Yeah, he well, he might know that too. That there are thankfully people that know what to do. Like, let's just say, for example, if I ever got to make a movie, unfortunately, the last thing I'd ever make is a horror movie. I'm a diehard horror fan. All I would do is make some John Carpenter knockoff with chainsaws, and it would suck. It would be like everything else you can find on Amazon Prime. I'd make some spiraling fucking Paris, Texas bullshit. Some sad, sappy story. No you one's know. ever gonna watch it. Exactly that, you know, and that's just the type of guy I am. And Spielberg, man, it's there for a reason. Well, it's it, the name. like Jaws is even a massive exploitation movie. It's Spielberg is a horror guy. He just marketed things. He bought out. He didn't. Well, buy, I mean, he, he bought in. He didn't sell out. Even with Jaws, like I was saying, like it's a horror film, definitely. But at the same time, the amount of horror in it is very much about buildup. And it's very much more about a character piece than it is about actual thrills. I'm not saying he just likes horror films. I think Spielberg probably likes watching horror films. I just don't think like somewhat like Jess Franco, when he made blood or uh, was it bloody moon? Um, he made a slasher film and he does not have an affinity for making slasher films. He has an affinity for making smut. He liked making like artful porn and shit. And when he made a slasher film, he just kind of crapped something out. He didn't even like the movie himself. And I think Spielberg's kind of the same way about, stuff it's just like i don't know how to do this i don't want to do this i'm more about telling stories about hope even but, jurassic park is technically a horror film but it also has a bunch of family love huggy shit going you can on. even say has to have that close encounters of the third kind you know it's it's horror aliens film. invading earth it's a very horrific subject matter but it's such a hopeful happy movie when you get yep. to the long run 
But that's <laughs> you not a can't do it. You, you just have to look trick, at man. Well, I mean, if you look into the spectrum of what things consist as as a horror movie or as a sci-fi movie, he includes everything in every aspect. Uh, you know, I think he makes in general a, a, a picture that encompasses everything every time. Even Indiana Jones. I mean, you got guys ripping people's hearts out. You've got some really hardcore stuff. Nazis' faces melting in the Ark of the Covenant. He deals with a universe, a full universe, when he makes a movie. He includes it all. And that's, like, I don't want to pick on Steven Spielberg. I'm not, like, the biggest, I have a boner for him type of guy. But he is, like, last week's show, one of the greatest directors. He really should be up there. I mean, he's made, weirdly to me, I don't think I have any, like, Jaws is great. But there's nothing specifically important out of his career except uh, maybe Gremlins. Like, Gremlins, as a kid, I had fond memories with. I've never been a Christmas person. I've never enjoyed that time of year, but I've always loved watching Gremlins when it got cold out. And so it just, something about it was family friendly, but still raw enough that as you grew up from watching Gremlins as a child to a teenager to an adult, you still could have fun. Like, God, I relate to the Dick Miller character more and more. It's awful. Because <laughs> you're a cranky old fucking man. Exactly. Um, what I think really saved Gremlins in the long run, though, was Joe Dante, because he was able to take that subject matter, which Spielberg wanted to kind of split the difference on, make a horror film that's also kind of a family film. And Dante was able to add a cartoonishness to it and make it really over the top. I mean, he even did more so with Gremlins 2, which I think is the superior film personally. But um, he just made like a live action cartoon out of it and it worked and it fucking sold a lot of tickets open the same day as Ghostbusters and they basically were comparable to each other and like gross Gremlins made I think 150 million dollars a shit ton of money yeah I mean that's a great deal compared to we'll get into Ghoulies in a little bit but um Ghoulies actually started its writing process that one Gremlins ripoff ever got close to the same returns as Gremlins well, Ghoulies actually, it's didn't, it didn't get close, but it has a fair spectrum because technically it started its writing process at the same time or before Gremlins, depending on who you ask, but it made $30 million. $150 million comparatively, though, is pretty pretty big for a movie, especially going against Ghostbusters at the same time. But That's I a think... a marked difference. Well, Joe Dante gets the credit, obviously, as the director, but if it wasn't for Roger Corman showing Joe Dante how to sell, I don't think... If Joe, if Joe and if Joe and Roger had never been in the same room, Gremlins would have never existed. That this is a Roger Corman picture with a big budget, and it's it's just delightful because Gremlins is pretty. It's I, I, yeah, it's pretty it's blue. It, is. it gets really uh, inappropriate. Just I mean, and the, the just sexual innuendos when you go back and watch films that you the, liked as a child is ridiculous. To sum up, Gremlins, it's the fucking. My dad got caught in the chimney and died on Christmas speech that Phoebe Cates gives. That is what sums up the the tone of Gremlins of just like, what is this diversion and why did it get so fucking dark? I've always hated Christmas. My dad used to come down the chimney. We couldn't find him for weeks. And it turns out he uh, just like, God damn, I was just watching something act like a Looney Tune five seconds ago. Now you're going to tell me about the day your dad died. Awesome. And that's Joe Dante throwing the curveball. Yeah, that's the why he is considered a master of horror. And I think really what set off the tone, because every movie that has been considered or is part of, you know, the tiny terror, terrible movies, they all have very quick witted, almost hysterical dialogue. And I think it all is stolen. And that's, you know, the preface comes from Gremlins, that the dialogue is very quick. It's uh 
it's like Quentin Tarantino dialogue almost. It's just to reference him again. It's very quick. It's very funny. It's not incredibly realistic, but like munchies, uh, something we'll get into. The dialogue's fucking hysterical throughout the entire movie and drives it and keeps you almost not looking at how goofy what you're yeah, watching munchies is. is a weird, different beast, man. Yeah, we'll I like munchies. Um, but like, before we get any deeper into this, I just want to put a caveat on this episode that no, we are not bringing up the ultimate Gremlins ripoff film, which is Critters, because we're going to save Critters and we'll probably do a retrospective or something. So we don't want to get into all the Critters movies on this one. Yes, I'm acknowledging that Critters is basically part of the same genre, but we just don't have enough time to talk about that. We want to talk about like the bargain basement fucking Gremlins knockoffs. <laughs> we want to talk about the shitty ones more than anything. You asked for a goofy show, so you're getting a goofy show with a spiraling long intro about Richard Stanley and basements and all sorts of everything that <laughs> is in the write up of Death by DVD. You, you're getting this is our return episode. We're getting back to our roots on this one. Oh, we'll get into some roots and our roots, shitty roots. Like all, most of these directors, what I've doing a, just very minimum research like this week on these. Almost every single director um, who made a Gremlins knockoff never admits that no, this the no, this script was way written way before Gremlins was. They all say it. Every single one of them says it. And I just even if I the movie's ten years honest. older than Gremlins, yes, they do. No, this was a completely independent idea I had. But well, come on, you're kind of full of shit. You're kind of full of shit a little bit. I didn't realize the comparisons till I saw it on DVD in 2004 after there was seven websites of accusations made against me ripping off Gremlins. Claudio Fergasso is my favorite person. Um, he There was apparently a, uh, a screening or at a convention, something, that had the cast members of Troll 2, and they were just generally talking about the movie, and Claudio was banned because he just kept screaming, "You're all dogs! This is not a ripoff! It's you're oh, yeah, lying!" That's the best yeah, you're, I've actually never seen the documentary. I've never sat down and and watched anything about Troll Two outside of watching Troll Two. I'll admit that. <laughs> uh, so let's go ahead and we'll kind of start a little bit at the beginning. We're not going to stick specifically to a timeline here or anything, but um. You can probably say that Ghoulies was the first Gremlins ripoff, even though I think it's a ripoff mostly in ad campaign sense, because the movie they turned out is like it's more about Satanism than it is about little puppets. I think he just knew what to sell, which was the puppets in the film, because that's what Charles Band was good at was selling a poster. And that's what he did with this film. The only reason anyone ever watched this goddamn movie is what the poster is of a cute little green puppet coming out of a toilet wearing suspenders. I wanted to see it as a kid. I begged my mother to watch this movie. I don't, I don't think you should watch it. It's rated R. Yet I could watch fucking Reanimator and a bunch of other shit, but that's beside the point. Watching Ghoulies the first time, because I didn't see Ghoulies the first one. I saw Ghoulies 2 first. And Ghoulies 1, watching it after Ghoulies 2, is like almost a complete disappointment of this kind of middle of the road run through Satanism angle film about a guy moving into his old ancestral home and he starts communing with magic and the devil and he conjures up some gremlins knockoff things to do his bidding even though they're barely in the movie it's mostly little midgets and medieval mar uh, marvel uh, uh medieval armor I don't know why I kept saying marvel um 
But yeah, so I always thought Ghoulies was kind of a disappointment of a rubber monster movie. It was, I just didn't find the Satan angle very interesting it. But, you know, there's some high points to the movie here and there. I think it's acted fairly well. I think it's shot fairly well. It's got uh, Jack Nance. It's got Jack Nance in it in a weird fucking like cult member robe at one point shooting laser beams out of his asshole, which is I not never the weirdest. See that before. Definitely not the weirdest thing I've seen Jack Nance do, unfortunately. Uh, he did some <laughs> pornography or spanking, more or less. I don't want to call it pornography, but he did some uh, yes. fetish yeah, fetish spanking videos. It's very uncomfortable to uncover and find. There was a fish in the percolator. Don't drink that coffee, fellas. Um, but like Ghoulies is a mastery of an advertising campaign, I personally think. Um, a movie, it's a bit of a failure, and that's where we kind of get into Ghoulies 2 for me because I find Ghoulies 2 to be the supreme Ghoulies film. It's the movie that you they advertised. It's the one that people wanted to see after they saw the original Ghoulies, just assuming it was going to be kind of a Gremlins film and not getting that, getting this weird cult story. And with Ghoulies 2, it, I find it to be a lot of fun. It's cheap. It's cheesy. Most of the acting sucks. Um, it has almost no story, but I have nostalgia and I have unironic love for Ghoulies 2. It's just one of those movies I can watch time and time again. I always took the first Ghoulies, as you mentioned, as more of a like satanic panic thriller movie. And I, you know, I think honestly, I saw Ghoulies too, as you did beforehand. But as a teenager, I always really enjoyed like that was one of my heavy metal stoner movies to get all my punk and metalhead friends over and get them stoned and watch Ghoulies. I, I always loved the party scene. You got the coolest guy in the world with two pairs of sunglasses, which I used to mimic and would wear as a fucking teenager two pair that's like the guy in ghoulies because it's cool and i just always associated the movie with kind of a, a goofy air of 80s cool in the same vein as like tourist trap i've loved just it's it's nonchalant it doesn't mean to be funny but you can poke fun at it it's it's seriously overacted the satanic theme is just fitting in right to that 80s satanic panic everything's evil throw a black robe on it draw a pentagram on the ground and we've already got an audience here. So I just, and I love early Charles band salesmanship of him just pushing an object at you, no matter what it might be. And you taking it ghoulies too is it, that's where you get the ghoulies and you get sort of the more three stooges humor and the jokes and they develop their own characterization. And you can kind of get, you get that gremlins feel because once the Mogwai becomes a gremlin, they all have their little catchphrases and you've got the Mohawk one and they have individual characterization. And Ghoulies two has that more shtick fun humor. It definitely feels more like a full boon pic uh, picture. I think it's Albert band directed it, right? Albert and Charles band. Yeah. The father yeah, and so directing team. So that definitely, you know, that explains why that it's it's got the purity of full moon before they just kind of went hardcore into just being rubber goofiness. Well, that's also when they were still spending money on movies like Ghoulies 2 probably has a budget of like two million dollars, I would say. And he was actually still trying to turn out product. Um, but Charles Mann, especially in the Empire days, knew how to market. He knew how to market really well. And you can see in his the early full moon days of what he was good at was marketing. And then when he kind of fucked up the full moon deal with Paramount, you kind of see all that fall down because I mean, taste changed at that point. And 
people started picking him up for what he is. I mean, he's, I'm not like sitting here talking shit. He's just, I mean, he's a salesman. He's a, he's a huckster. So I'm going to sell you this. I'm going to sell oh, yeah, you this bong movie that has two sets. Right, exactly. That's what I, I mean. Like, look at some of the products he puts out, like Evil Bong and Ginger Dead Man. That the the for the most part, it's cashing in off of. I do it's puppets. Cashing on an puppets. idea, not even a product. It's the idea of the product, actually. I'm the puppet guy. I mean, Ginger Dead Man features roughly four or five minutes of actual dialogue by Gary Boosie, and they just hired a guy to do a, a, a similar voice. That's what Charles Band is putting his effort into because it's going to bring a return. Somebody's going to get it on video on demand stone with their friends and watch it. But formerly, he, his effort was appreciated. I mean, uh, Full Moon and uh, Line. Empire. 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 <laughs> Line. Empire, uh, both. I mean, when they in their early years, I mean, you have films like Castle Freak that are absolutely fantastic that came from the mind of Charles Band. So, I mean, he's a quality guy. He, I would consider him a master of horror in his own right, especially the early career. And I think Ghoulies 2 is something that really puts it up there because it's you can show your mom Ghoulies 2, you can show your date Ghoulies 2, you can watch it after 10 years and not seeing it and have fun and still have an all around uh, good time. Well, Finally, Charles Band was a man of his time and he was a man of the late seventies, eighties and early nineties because he really adapted all that carny style exploitation filmmaking. I mean, look at someone like, um, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Once the eighties came around, he didn't know how to work the film market at all anymore because his era was over. His level of salesmanship was over and Charles bands was picking up. And then throughout the, middle to late nineties. That's when Charles Bannon's era started to end because he just, he didn't know how to sell to the same crowd. He didn't know how to like, cause he's an exploitation man and exploitation doesn't really exist in cinema anymore. They're echoes of exploitation films, but I'm talking real exploitation cinema. Uh, it's funny, the difference kind of between the two and how eras can make things so completely different that Charles Band still continues to work and put out a project. But, um, Herschel had, what he became the king of uh, was uh, writing brochures, like brochure writing, or yeah, of some... market selling, mail market selling. Yeah, and that's what he had like retired and had been doing. And I, I believe Joe Bob Briggs was going to show uh, one of his movies on one of his first TV shows, and had hunted him down to Florida and like knocked on his door and had learned all this stuff about his brochure work. And his wife had, you know, banned him from talking about his earlier movies. And they just were so surprised and shocked that people were going to show them on TV again, that they wanted to see them as to where uh, in the same vein, Joe Bob showed blood freak recently. You know, he's, he's shown castle freak recently. He shows Charles band movies. He brings them back, but Charles band movies have never really gotten lost like HG Lewis. And to an extent well, until like that big remake phase, Roger Corman movies kind of faded out and all became public domain and got lost over time. Think about this, though. Um, H.G. Lewis, a after the 70s, kind of got out of filmmaking and got into, you know, direct male fucking marketing. Wasn't he a doctor also? <laughs> no, he was he like kind of taught here and there. He taught advertising in some like as a professorship in some places. But um, like his crowd got old with him. So he followed the crowd he knew how to sell to old people through the fucking mail. And the same thing with Charles Band. He's still Charles Band is still selling to those kids in the '90s who would pick up garbage movies at the video store. He's not selling to a youth market. He's selling to the same schmoes 
who saw Ghoulies on TV in like fucking 1987. So that's just, I mean, it's a, it's a product of age as well. I, don't, I think it's just, you know, your specific market. And once you start getting older, you just, I don't know about these kids these days. I don't know what they like. Was the dubstep? Is that what they're into? Charles Band knows nothing of dubstep. Yeah, and it's guys like Lloyd Kaufman in the same vein that they're still putting out product. And I guarantee you Lloyd will say till the day he dies, he believes in every movie he puts out. But for the most part, it's marketing and selling a poster. And he's still selling to us. He's still yeah. selling to the same crowd. He's not like the youth crowd is kind of picking it up a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying that all trauma fans are over 40 or whatever. It's just that the punk rock attitude of trauma is still bringing in the youth, but it's not bringing in the numbers that it used to in the eighties and nineties. It's just, he doesn't know how to sell to a, a youth crowd at this point, which is fine. It's just, it's, it's a part of life. It's just, you start you stop being relevant. Well, Sorry. the youth market too right now is kind of dominated by guys like James Wan. I mean, the youth market is the conjuring. It's jump scare, yeah. massive budget horror pictures. It's no longer gore exploitation that the kids want to go out and see. They want something that they can make some game out of, something that can become a trend, something that can become a fascination, and you get 17 movies. Like, a new Annabelle is coming out, and these are all spinoffs from the exact same original subject matter. So... It's got to have legs. Something has to be mobile and you be able to make 30 things out of it. That's what the youth wants. They don't want Tromeo well, and Juliet. I can tell you what the youth doesn't want. They don't want one to two movies a year that you trickle out. The youth market wants content. And they don't want to like it's not even about the amount of time of perfecting the content or anything else. No, I need regular digestible content, preferably at least once a week. I would like you. I mean, that's what YouTube essentially is, is I need you to sell me something all the time, not just twice a year. So that's why I mean, that's why it's hard to compete for companies like Troma is because they care about their product. They can't just keep pumping shit out. And that's what youth market wants is you just pump out a product until you run yourself into the ground and I'm done with you. And that's why there are what, like five evil bong movies. Yeah, it's just crank the shit out. Because uh, even with Ghoulies, content. I mean, continuously until 1994, you had a Ghoulies movie coming out every two or three years. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the problem with that is Charles Band was no longer affiliated with Ghoulies after Ghoulies 2. Um, he sold the rights to it to um, pay off debts for Empire Pictures. So he sold it to MGM, I think, or something. So MGM put out. Ghoulies Go to College, Ghoulies 3 by uh, John Carl Beekler directed it. So, I mean, that's a Charles Band alumni. He worked with Charles Band. He worked on Troll, which we'll be talking about a little bit here. Um, it's my favorite Ghoulies movie because they get an education in that one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a screwball comedy where the Ghoulies now talk. Um, it's a college. And like, they're bigger. They're flick, basically. Yeah, they're, they're much, much bigger. bigger. Um, and the, the puppets are granted a little bit bigger i mean the humor is bottom of the barrel shit it's not a very funny movie it does to have me, some decent effects though this is a heavy kind of like reanimator ripoff as it is a gremlins ripoff that you've got a lot of the same themes and dark humor that um stuart gordon featured in reanimator with the evil professor lead and i think he's a humanities teacher named ragnar quentin ragnar one hell of a name on the character who finds now you can conjure up the ghoulies through an old magazine that was slash a toilet. 
Yeah, it was never. It's a toilet that they'll come out of if you read this old magazine that was never published. And the evil school humanities teacher uncovers it and now uses the ghoulies, which are the three stooges essentially for evil. And it's just got that. It wants to play off that reanimator tension and take itself seriously, but at the same time, it's just a goofy, schmucky comedy. And out of all of them, uh, Ghoulies 3 is probably my favorite, just because it is schmucky. And Beekler oh. was great. I, oh. I just love the Beekler effects. I love the rubber puppet effects. It's got a Don oh. Dollar feel to it. I mean, Ghoulies 2 is the best in the series. No hand. I mean, that's that goes without a doubt. But Ghoulies 3, I think, is my favorite to watch. I can't stand Ghoulies 3 because I think it's shit. I can't stand the humor in it. I can't. But, I mean, one thing I will say about Ghoulies 3, what did you notice that is carried over in at least the first three Ghoulies films? That one green ghoulie. The toilet ghoulie. poster is always on it because that is their brand recognition. And that's the funny thing. Toilets and rubber monsters. That is what they constantly sold with Ghoulies until you get to Ghoulies 4, of course. But... That's and why initially my mother didn't want me to watch Ghoulies when I was younger because of the toilet. She was, no, it's going to be potty humor. I don't want you running around with the, these is. Howard Stern jokes. For Christ's sakes, they're yeah. like they're raising a magic wrong. ceremony from the toilet in the third one. They just they're leaning into the skit at this point. I'm just going to give people what I think they want. And I think that's why I like it because it just appeals to. We, uh, they're admitting that they're ripping it off. It almost becomes a parody, almost like the the Wayne's Brothers scary movie series and uh, the other horror parodies from the mid '90s. That it's it's just poking fun of itself, and I can appreciate that. And I like Beekler. I just like the way he did things. I'll, I'll when we get into it, even say a grave statement. I like Troll. I like Troll. Yeah, I think Beekler had a style. I mean, even with uh, the Jason movies, I by no means really enjoy what goes on in his. I think it's one of the worst in the series, but it's a hell of a movie to watch. It was directed really well. It's got awesome action. It looks it looks great. I just think it's a dumb story. I think like I will tell you this much about John Carl Beekler. Out of any makeup effects artist, I can spot a rubber suit or a puppet he made in almost any movie. I, if I don't see the opening credits and I see like a hand puppet type creature, I can usually tell his art style and the way that he's got these like really scrunchy faces that he always puts on his, uh, his special effects and stuff. And so he definitely had a style. He had a look and you can always identify his work in all the movies he did. He just wasn't like a Tom Savini gore man. He was a sculptor. Yeah, that's one of the best sculptor, but he was a sculptor. It's one of my favorite things, actually, about Ghoulies Go to College is the ending professor transformation where he's got the giant stomach puppet and the two on his neck. And it, all of them, when he talks, opens their mouths. And it's just this very morbid, you know, Jim Henson on LSD kind of feel to it. And it's just over the top and it's fun. Nice. Yeah, it's just kind of bananas to me. And it's just the it's gooey, it, but it's still it's not like uh, Cronenberg's The Fly. It doesn't have this perversity to it as to where the dick and fart humor kind of carries that over and everyone can watch it. You know, you can show your 14-year-old nephew, your mother could suffer through it. You can show this on cable now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty tame movie overall. I think it has a maybe, does it have any nudity in it? Maybe a little bit. I think it's got some, nudity. I wouldn't even say PG nudity. I think you don't get any bare breasts, no uh, no pubic hair, nothing like that. I think you just get some scantily clad college girls. 
Yeah, and I think more of Ghoulies 3, it speaks to the time of Maya. Like, when it came out, I just wasn't interested in that kind of product anymore. And Ghoulies 2, I was at the just the right age, just the right time for that one. And I think one thing I like about Ghoulies 2, and this is, this is a stupid fucking statement. I will fully admit to that before I make it. But I think Ghoulies 2 actually has a heart to it. Because you have the story of Royal Dano, Royal Dano the old man who's a drunk magician who just he wants a little bit, a little taste of that fame he used to have. And he has this uh, grandson or nephew that he loves so much. And that, that their relationship and Phil Fondacaro, uh, is it Fondacaro or Fondacarlo? I think it's Fondacarlo. Fondacarlo, um, the little person actor from a lot of Empire movies and Charles Band stuff. He's always a great actor in um, when he's not wearing a rubber suit. Um, he's always like able to deliver dialogue very well. And I think that's why I partially like Ghoulies 2 so much is because it does have this very kind of, and it's cheesy, it's a, it's a cheap exploitation film, but it has a touching story at its base. And there's not anything really touching with Ghoulies 1. Ghoulies 3 is basically a joke. And I think Ghoulies 2, like, it can really help a film like this to have a little bit of some seriousness to it. And then you get to Ghoulies 4, which is just a chaotic mess of Jim Wynorski bullshit. I am not a fan of this film at all. I think it's complete garbage. I think some of the, uh, you know, f- the feelings of happiness or the the spirit or heart behind Ghoulies 2 really comes behind it being a band movie. And if you look at early Charles Band and Albert Band working together, everything did have a spirit or heart to it, like specifically Tourist Trap, that it's this heartbreaking story of a somehow freakishly psychic guy whose wife cheated on him, and he's slowly gone insane just living with his puppets, essentially, or his mannequins. And it still has a heart to it. Castle Freak even has a woeful kind of effect to it that, like how we were discussing with Spielberg, uh, the bands have a way of encompassing all emotion into things. So even though if it's a rubber monster movie, it did have a general beginning, middle and end and a point to carry it all the way through with which like troll, I think has a really good point and a heart to it. Ghoulies four is, uh, it's Jim I mean, Wynorski it, it, going, eh, why don't you, uh, why don't you take your top off? And that, he, that would be funny. Well, you get returning characters, and in on paper, it sounds good. On paper, it's, oh, cool, so the guy from the first movie's come back, and he's a cop, and now he has to fight the ghoulies, except the ghoulies are just little people in the costumes from Troll 2, and there's some weird Barbarella ripoff running around, and then it, it's, the ending is great. I love the ending to the movie, because it's one of those, are you okay? Hey, untie me! I'm so glad we... One, and then it ends. It's just like an over-the-top Ed Wood kind of thing. It really feels like an Ed Wood movie. Well, I mean, it, it's a statement to late, like early 90s, late 80s filmmaking of like the Jim Wynorski thing. Because Jim Wynorski, he can't, when he has a budget, he could actually turn out an okay product. But at a certain point, he just gets into this lazy, what I like to call warehouse shooting where you like, oh, it's a cop story. We'll have a few exteriors in the city, but mostly we're going to have a lot of gunfights in an empty warehouse, and we're going to just have 10K lights blasting on everybody. We're not in any attempt to really light it. We don't have the money to do that. So let's just, you know, do a thing, turn it out, put it on video, put the name Ghoulies on it, and let's just get the fuck out of here. It looks and feels like an underproduced episode of JAG. Yeah, it's just... It's uh, not fun. 
there's a thousand like action horror films from this time period that there's not a lot of effort put into them. Like I said, that you rent a warehouse and you shoot most of it in the warehouse. You will Snake have a bunch two. of empty boxes laying around to indicate some kind of set dressing because I know you don't have a budget, but Jesus, you can write your way out of that. It's not all about location. Sometimes it's not all about you easily being able to shoot in one location over and over again every day. Think your way out of these holes. That's, I mean, that's how writing works. That's how stories work. Well, like we right around it. We kind of dumped on Charles Band a little bit earlier of how his product has turned to now and how things are sold. Uh, Ghoulies Four came out in 1994, and at the same time, Charles Band was still shooting in Italy. You know, he went and made a castle movie in a castle. He was still taking a lot of respect and a lot of rights to what he was selling as a product. So it's kind of funny to see where the series turned without him and that essentially the Charles Band touch is what Ghoulies needed to stay afloat. I mean, we probably would have 22 Ghoulies movies if Charles Band still had the the rights to it. Oh, most definitely. And what's interesting is you brought up uh, another interesting point because Jim Minorsky was a um, little Cormanite and this is the time period of the, like of the 90s, 94, when the Corman Corman's remix. movie where he was Corman's movies were starting to like really lag in fucking quality because again, he's getting older and he doesn't know how to connect with the same market he used to. So he's kind of just putting out the same crappy product he has for years and is not adapting. Well, this is where also Corman goes kind of stagnant and stale and realized get out of the market and sell it. And he, that all those Corman remakes like teenage cavemen and stuff like that started popping out the showtime originals where, Every night at midnight, you'd have some Roger Corman remake that he, you know, get rich, figure out how to get out of this problem. I can't make and sell a movie anymore, but my movies can still be made and sold. So fuck it. And he turned it around, which uh, Lloyd Kaufman does. People get so mad at Lloyd because he pretty much says, you know, I'll give you money and then it's my movie. And uh, I don't care how you feel. I'll do whatever the hell I want to. But you take that offer up. You if you sign the contract, you knew what You're you were getting, getting a into. label. That's yeah. what you're getting, and that is going to sell your movie to your audience more so than you can do on Facebook any goddamn day of the week. So, I mean, Lloyd is somewhat justified in his means because he's really trying to keep his company afloat most of the time. I would have liked to have seen Ghoulies stay with Charles Band and would like to have 20 off the, the, the ball horrible Ghoulies sequels, but at the same time where it's ended and how the series is, it's, you know, and it works why we didn't bring up Critters, because trying to bounce these off of each other, like, you know, Ghoulies 1, Critters 1, it's just too much territory with Critters, because that's become, it's even though it's, mess. yeah, it's a ripoff, but it's become its own mess to where now Critters is being ripped off. So we got to treat that a little bit differently. Even by its own um, in-name products that are coming out are ripping it off. But anyway, um... We just got into Corman, so I guess we can segue into Corman's um, the double ripoff, Corman. which is Munchies um, from, was it 87? 1987, uh, directed okay. by editor Tina Hirsch. Yeah, who is an editor. She actually edited Gremlins, um, and she did a job for Corman. This movie, which is probably, I'd say, the most blatant Gremlins ripoff because it's little monsters that multiply and they do cute little funny things and wear sunglasses and do a bunch of goofball humor stuff and bright just, lights upset them. Um, yeah, this, run amok. 
this was such a blatant ripoff of Gremlins that Joe Dante actually came and visited the set and gave it, you know, his blessing and enjoyed it with the cast and crew and was kind of there and a part of it because it was it's sort of well, it's sort of one of the first big acknowledged ripoffs, too, of, you know, we are straight up not lying publicly. We're doing a Gremlins ripoff for much less money. I mean, you got Harvey Corman playing. Two different Two roles. roles. The best one uh, is the uncle, the the greatest role that Harvey Corman has ever played. Uh, Charlie Stratton's in the movie. I don't remember who else is in this. I think Wendy Shaw is in it. Um, the chick from Critters is in it. Robert Picardo is in it. A lot of uh, Cormanites. A lot of actually Joe Dante people are kind of in it. And I think no the Dick best, Miller. A best way to describe this movie uh, is broad. You can't get much broader than this because it is broad everything, broad comedy. Like everybody's playing a caricature. They're not playing actual people. They're playing weird stereotypes and weird characters. And it's it's got its own tweak kind of sense of humor. Um, I've seen Munchies a shit ton because I used to play on HBO back in the day a lot at midday, sometimes twice a day. Yeah, and, it was uh, never a 2 a.m. movie either. It was like you managed... Yeah, it's whenever you would wake up before one in the afternoon and hit the start button on your TV, you'd catch munchies halfway through. Or sometimes if you were unlucky, you would just get munchy. You'd get the sequel that has nothing to do with the movie at like two or three in the afternoon. Uh, Yeah, title alone, um, because there was two sequels called Munchie and Munchie rides again i can't remember the title yeah, the it, it was something really ridiculous like that and they have nothing to do with the series which the it's munchies creepy puppet i can tell you that much well you get a fun wraparound and story with the munchies that it's an archaeological uh, archaeological dig going on in machu picchu where this harvey corman's character the father believes that machu picchu was a big landing thing for aliens you know it's a big flight path for aliens to come and land and they find in it what he thinks is an alien and nonchalantly shove it in a bag and get some weird green sludge and take it back to like Arizona, some desert town where it turns directly into gremlins it, with no shame turns <laughs> no into shame. gremlins. And like this is mostly about the characters and how they interact with the little then they're terrible puppets because well, they don't move. Bringing they, they're up just kind characters. of stationary the entire time. You get a good askew of different characters, and like you said, a bunch of characters making fun of people in general, but to the extent that one guy's name is just Dude. <laughs> and he sings, all like, the whole movie, he just has a different Grateful Dead tie-dye shirt on and is singing Truckin'. And is you. this is where you get the true Gremlins uh, mixture into the movie, that he loses his cool, shoots these things up and cuts one up. Just awful scene of him destroying this thing with a knife, no effects budget whatsoever. And then you find out they spawn after committing atrocious acts of violence. Uh, so the guy listened to the Grateful Dead. I, weird, weird play there. There's no peace and love. What's funny about that is this was literally my introduction to the Grateful Dead. I had no idea what the band was at that time in my life. And I heard, like that's the first time I heard trucking was dude singing it. I was like, what is that song? That Trucking, I got thought my dude was in. as a kid. Dude he is the funniest shit to me. Yeah, it's a shame that he goes out so early in the movie that you could have done a whole dude movie. But then he plays on even better. His uh, he's adopted and his stepmom, the whole rest of uh, my little dude. I just wish I hadn't called him so ugly when he was 11. It's got just off kilter quotes and, and kind of how I meant with the very first Gremlins movie dialogue being so quick witted and just like the speech about dad being stuck in the chimney and dying. 
this movie just continuously one character wants to be a stand-up comedian and just hits you with these rim shots nonstop. It's like an episode of Seinfeld, but it's weirdly got a point. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's the kind of movie where it's just, hey, go up there and riff, Harvey. Go do like a character and go like just get these this bit of dialogue by however you can do it. Just make it funny. So literally every bit of dialogue is someone trying to make you laugh. And it's not all just jokes, but it's just the way they're reading it, the way they're acting, their performance. It's something. It's just let's make everything about this humorous. And I kind of overall have an affinity for Munchies. Just I'm, that's mostly nostalgic because it's a pretty shitty fucking movie. Um, I have no affinity for the weird Dom DeLuise voice sequel. That, oh, it's just creepy bullshit. Like they were kid, just kids movies too. a magical thing called a munchie. Well, even like the fluff and the wraparound stuff that doesn't really matter to pad out the movie and munchies is hysterical. You know, you got this whole Harvey Corman subplot that the uncle has this health food business and is making all the health food out of toxic waste and storing it underground and the munchies are going to get into it and find it. And essentially it's just filling the movie and runtime with some other stuff, but all of it plays pretty hysterically and keeps you satisfied that Munchies is a throwaway movie. Yeah, it's just a goofy knockoff, but it's hysterical. And it almost I like it more than than Gremlins. Gremlins, too, like you said, I think is a, a more successful movie. But uh, in my opinion, but the, the Munchies is better than Gremlins. I, I would sit down. And <laughs> I would not go that far, sir. <laughs> I love like his. I mean, I can get into Gremlins and I get into the tone and I love how it's shot. Joe Dante is great and he's a master. But Munchies just has something else to offer. It's got just a level of I think it's how blatantly it doesn't give a shit what it's ripping off. To me, I can watch it and have a better time than when I'm watching Gremlins. Yeah, I'd say that's probably its high points is it literally is very unapologetic for what it is. This is what we're doing. Get on the ride or don't, don't give a fuck. Um, even down to like the, the, the costumes of like Robert Ricardo, um, the ice cream store costumes, like the weird melted ice cream hats and like the little ET joke that they throw in there. Um, any eighties movie where you're chasing monsters on a miniature golf course, I'm all in favor for, um, but yeah, just overall, it's just it's got such a like a tweaked sensibility to it and a personality all of its own that that's why I do have a bit of affinity for it is it's just it's definitely its own little its own little thing. This isn't that bad. I was attacked by a bear once. <laughs> it's uh, you're making me actually like munchies way more than I should. Yeah, there's uh, just a lot of unique dialogue and kind of one off. Like uh, the this character essentially, oh looters! I see, and he just starts blind firing with this shotgun after locking himself in an eye. And and it's even weird that they just they keep through the whole movie that the character likes the munchie, likes snack food. Arnold, they name it after the pig in Green Acres. So through the whole movie, these creatures aren't going out of their way to hurt people like the gremlins are. They just want junk food. That's the point of the movie that these things want junk food. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a pretty. Uh, inane plot but it's just i think the best thing you can say about it is it's just harmless it's a harmless movie it's i mean i can show it to any kid i would have no problem showing this to any kids um just as as dumb as all the jokes are in it it's just a dumb ass little movie that it can it's kind of endearing in a way 
And you've got a lot of like goofy throwaway characters like the sheriff and his son that are just over the top kind of comedy ball breaking kind of guys. And it it just it's like it's enlightening and it's a light movie. You can throw it on any marathon. I think, like you said, you could throw it to any audience, really. It's not something like, I don't know, Death Death Show Game, uh, Death Row Game Show that is a mixed audience. <laughs> I like Death Row Game Show. I'm a fan. I um, enjoy it, but I don't think you could like easily sit down and, and expose somebody to that as to where you could say, hey, you know, you want to watch Munchies? And without smoking a bowl, somebody still laugh. Yeah, and just to bounce it, uh, back from Corman, back to John Carl Beekler and Empire, we have Troll, which I think is in name a Gremlins ripoff um, that you think you're going to be getting kind of a puppety movie, which you do. You do overall get a puppety movie, but it's not kind of the um, the wackiness of something like Munchies or Gremlins. It's more of its own little story, and it's very serious at times, which I find very odd about the movie because Michael Moriarty's character and it's just a goofball son of a bitch. And then we're getting into all these kind of weird fantasy themes with, um, June Lockhart of all people, um, playing a very serious character, funny, but at the same time, deadly serious into their intentions of what's going on in this building of this, uh, I'd say a fairly well done little person suit. Um, of Torok the Troll. I mean, his head is huge to hold all the uh, servo motors, but it's a decent little outfit. And um, Philip Carlo plays that character as well as, what is it, uh, Malcolm in the film? And he's the best character of the movie. He's fucking heartbreaking. I lost what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about Michael Moriarty. His character <laughs> and the goofiness completely, uh, and uh, that's something that's kind of intriguing, and one reason why I really, really like Troll is just the thoughtfulness behind it and the development of some of the characters and uh, rewatching it to do this show and to, to get into troll territory. I just couldn't help but notice how thoughtful everything is. It almost has a Jim Henson feel to it compared to a gremlins feel that it's, it's terrifying. And through the, like, we'll get into this with the gate, but through the concept of a child is where you have to deal with troll. And it gets this like this incessant amount of hate on the internet because it's a goofy, I mean, like the Sonny Bono scene is ridiculous. The uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus scene is ridiculous. Uh, that was her, I think, introduction, her first big film she made with her uh, future husband. And you got to look past just how silly some of the aspects are that it's through the eyes of a child. And this little girl has been completely lost into this fantasy world uh, and overtaken by this evil entity where her brother, Harry Potter, played by uh, Noah Hathaway from The NeverEnding Story. Has you. To, yeah, he has to. I weirdly I got drunk with Noah Hathaway like 10 years ago and didn't know it was him for the longest time. Finally, people came up and asked for his autograph, and I started looking at him, and he's covered in tattoos. He's sleeved out, has neck tattoos, looks completely different. And it took me – and 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 this is where my brain goes. It wasn't a Treyu. It was squinting, and finally it was like, wait, you're the kid from that sci-fi show, aren't you? That's where I go with it, a show that came out before I was even fucking born, not a Treyu. Yeah, I got drunk with Noah Hathaway one time. He's a nice guy. But it's through the aspect of Harry Potter and him trying to save his sister. And it's a very innocent tale. It's it's a horror story, but it's more or less, like it's I said, a fantasy. A Jim, it's a Jim Henson horror story for children. And it was dealt with by adults that were already heavy working in the exploitation and horror industry. And they wanted to, like, initially Beekler wanted this to be 
Um, I can't think of the reference I was going to make, but a slasher movie going through apartments, um, toolbox murders kind of thing, where each person in the apartment was going to get killed by this evil troll, and it was going to be a lot more vicious and darker than it had come out. And as production got pushed more forward, it became a lot more child-friendly, like the pictures of Torok before he becomes a troll or characters drawn by some guy on the beach of Beekler. And uh, it's just... It's innocent. It's just got this level of fun that by the time I finish the movie, I'm, I don't know, I just feel like a 10-year-old a little bit. I feel like I've gone back and been able to watch something without judging it because of its effects or its acting or I hated it how good it looks. Because yeah, I thought it was I never saw it stuff. as a kid. I saw it and I was like, this is baby stuff. I want to see Nightmare on the Street. Yeah, that was a fucking battle i had with my mother at that point too um, i didn't see troll until i was 16 or 17 so this was something i intentionally skipped because you know you you read all these reviews for magazines and by the time that i was a teenager you know deep red was ending ultraviolet was sort of the new wave so nobody was covering this this was laughable and then it got its resurgence as you know this is the best worst movie the sequel is the best worst sequel it's so bad you have to see it that you know you get stuck into watching something and going back and appreciating it years later yeah especially for its subsequent quote-unquote sequel um troll is great in comparison to troll 2 troll 2 makes fucking troll look like a like a fucking Maserati. It's just like, look at this sexy, sleek movie that uh, John Beekler put together. And then you get into Claudio Fergasso's uh, Troll 2, and it's just like, well, that is just a steaming pile of bullshit, isn't it? Because, oh, my God. I like I saw Troll 2 on HBO, and I immediately picked up. Like I was five minutes in. I'm like, this movie is fucking terrible. And what does it have to do with Troll? And I pre-internet so you couldn't figure out like this was just some italian movie blah, blah blah but this was also the time when um people were kind of starting to make sequels to more acknowledged films like direct-to-video sequels to them and so it's just like okay so this is just some direct-to-video sequel that charles band threw together for this man he's hit hard times look how terrible this is having no like idea that i, I didn't know who claudio forgasso was at, at this point so or draco floyd even Which <laughs> still, you know, referencing Claudio Fergasso, what the guy that did Zombie Three, there's not a lot of mesmerizing material to compare his name to. Director. Yeah, that's he what is I a mean. Fucking awful director. And He's not made one quality film ever. Monster Dog, which I love, Alice Cooper. I'm not a fan of Monster Dog because it's a big piece of shit. Well, on one end, you have him saying this is all an original idea and it's not a knockoff on anything, despite, you know, it. one, it's called Troll 2 and it's about goblins. There are no trolls in the movie. It's no blog. It's goblin backward. But they rip off the whole plant and the trolls eating that and turning people into this whole atmosphere. And then for more or less, it's just this uh, anti-vegetarian propaganda movie. And that's the explanation pretty much I've read that Claudio's wife's friends had all become vegetarians and it annoyed her. So they decided to come to America and ruin a bunch of people's time and give them some hell. You vegans are all trolls. You all goblins. Um, what's, what's weird is he made this as, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something along the lines of just goblins. But the American distribution company got a hold of it, had the rights to troll, so they just decided to 
like name it troll too. I don't know why the American distribution company bought this film. Cause it's obviously a pile of shit. I guess that's the, like we can sell this as troll too. Let's just go. Let's I mean, it has enough similarities. This. Yeah, enough, I guess. I mean, it's wildly different, but I mean, little people in fucking monster suits. There you go. God, I've never, trolls, who knows the difference? Uh, I've never gotten the, best worst attachment to this of people loving it because it's so bad like i know a couple people that have uh tattoos from the movie i know one dude whose every screen name is Nilboggy. that's what it's his wrestling name he has to go by it it's whatever i just don't get the attachment to something that doesn't matter and unfortunately i'm just you know throwing it out there i'm gonna say that it doesn't matter and that's like completely disrespecting and disregarding somebody's artistic integrity but troll 2 is such a mess i mean i I'm going to piss on hospitality, and that's just the type of guy I am. <laughs> well, what happened in, like, the mid-2000s um, around social networking became, like, a real thing with, like, MySpace? Troll 2, is that's really where it started getting its underground base. It was about the mid-2000s. So it was kind of an exclusive club to be in there for a while, kind of like how The Room was, kind of like how Birdemic was. Um but even August Underground, two, essentially, you know, people got in on something and it was, oh, it yeah. was fun to be in on it. Well, and, and like with Troll 2, it's pre hardcore Twitter, super involved in the Internet times. So it could outlive its, you know, its expiration date a little bit longer because like the room was when we like social networking was huge. So the room burned extremely bright and so did Bert Demick for like a two years and then it was gone and troll two kind of hung on there for like five, six years of being this great underground, terrible movie classic. Yeah. Well, now you're making me think of, um, no, never mind. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh Oh, you're um, making me think of, and then it shoots right out the door. Uh, sometimes my brain is filled with Swiss cheese. Well, and like Claudio Fergasso has gone back and he wants to make, um, troll two part two. Because we're not going to call it Troll Three. We got to get that name recognition in. Um, plus, um, Joe Diamato already made fucking Troll Three as Quest for the Mighty. I don't know. It's a long fucking. He also made um, Contamination Seven, which is also known as Troll Three in some territories. But I digress. We'll get into Claudio Fergasso. Um, he still doesn't understand why people love this movie and hopefully he could make another bad movie, but with something like bird Demick, um, they leaned again, leaned hard into the skit and decided to go for comedy as opposed to, I mean, it's aware of itself at that point. And I don't want a sequel to troll two that is aware of itself where they're trying to make a bad movie because that's not fun. Bird Demick two was not fun. It was terrible because now you're in on the joke. It's the same thing as like Sharknado. Like Sharknado was in on the joke a little bit. And then by the second one, it's just like, no, everybody's in on the joke. Al Roker's in the movie. It's just like, ah, oh, fuck you. That's boring now. That's See, boring like, to me. Sharknado is something that I've just, I, I've still never watched. I've still never taken the time. And to me, I almost feel like it's wasting my time. And I'm all about finding the worst of the worst. But when you intentionally brand it that way, and when you try and sell it to me that way, you've made me lose interest with it. And I think that's where a lot of my problem with the fascination adoration for troll two comes from that to the extent that, well, I mean, Claudio Fergasso doesn't even get why people like it. And it's um, like Tom six, he knows what is triggering people and what makes people 
flip shit, and he goes out of his way to exploit that. He has been leaking and sneaking pieces of his new movie and building it up like a circus freak of how awful it's going to be. And we all saw The Human Centipede 3. Yeah, it's whatever. It 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 was shocking and vulgar, and it, I understand where it comes from. But everything that was promoted and said about that movie, just like Roger Corman and Lloyd Kaufman and H.G. Lewis did, never showed up in the movie. Half of the things that I was supposed to be shocked by never showed up. So when you bill this to me as it's the best, worst movie, and then I sit down and watch it, and it's not, I I'm almost offended you sold that to me. That's where I mean, but that's just where I'm trying to like get my reference in. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely get what you're saying. It's, it's, it's a symptom of the same basic core idea structure of just... Buyer's things, remorse. Well, things outlive their usefulness. Like Troll 2 was the best, worst movie from 2005 to 2000, whatever. And Manos, the hands of fate from like the nineties to this point, like were best, worst movies can only last so long because they burn extremely bright and then they burn the fuck out because that is just the nature of how that works. And we'll find new worst movies ever coming up. I mean, there's plenty of the way prime is and streaming. There's plenty of movies that are worth. I mean, think about like plan nine worst movie ever. Compare it to some of the like just shit you see on like Netflix on a regular basis. Is Plan Nine that bad compared to this terrible fucking ghost movie or whatever? This garbage that somebody like tricked Netflix into buying or leasing, however you want to put it. Well, too, you have to look at people's uh, rate of discovery. I mean, about five years ago, we came on the show and did a live episode about Neil Breen, and I'm just now starting to see his name it's pop burning up. Out. <laughs> He's yeah, starting to burn out now. People have finally discovered him massively, and the nostalgia and the fun of your first Neil Breen movie is worn off now that there are five to watch, and he's not done anything differently because he's become self-aware of, I'm going to destroy laptops. That's it. Break more laptops. Let's do that. And now we just get a whole movie of Neil Breen breaking laptops. Where's the point? Where's the fun? You got to do keep doing your crazy bullshit, and that's the glory of, I guess— troll because it was when they were making movie. it yeah they were taking it incredibly seriously when they were making it and funnily enough the only fucking person on the set that could speak english to the actors so you have all, all the production everybody involved in the movie is italian and then all the actors are american and there was a massive language gap between the two the one person to save the day laura gemser black emmanuel uh <laughs> somehow got involved on this what was she the art director she did all the uh costuming Costumes. costume director laura gimser if you've not seen what well, she she did uh the emmanuel in the last cannibal world uh two or three what, joe d'amato stuff but lots she, of it. she did two or three emmanuel movies she might have done more should have done a little bit more emmanuel research i'll admit there i've actually out of all i've seen a couple of the regular emmanuel films and then i've seen emmanuel in the last cannibal world and i think that's about it because for the most part those are skin flick nudie cuties and i just don't have a big thing for porn it's a blind uh, spot i just i don't yeah. care about erotica or sex films that's one of those just not i am but that's just one of those you know cheesy imdb facts about a movie uh that i kind of got enthralled with that wow so the one person to break the, the barrier and the gap is the softcore porn star that's been making offbeat cannibal movies with Joe Diamato the last 10 years and is somehow stuck in this. And that just even adds, I guess, to a little bit of charm to Troll 2 for me. 
but you know, not to like piss on all the food and piss all over troll too. I just never, when I first saw it, it didn't click with me. And when I've rewatched it, it just doesn't click with me that I get it. And I guess I'm trying to look at it as a more serious movie and I'm trying to see it from Claudio's standpoint. I want to see it through what he wanted it to be. And it just comes off as like anti-vegetarian he's, propaganda. He's crazy, Hank. Yeah, that's hard. the world of, of a crazy person. So, I mean, I don't feel I'm I'm far off with saying Troll 2 is anti-vegetarian propaganda. No, I mean, she fully admitted to that. Yeah, so, okay, I mean, I, I just don't want to... I'm trying to respectfully not, like, say it sucks, but Troll 2 kind of sucks. And But that's the whole point. Troll 2 kind of sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's a best-worst movie, and those go for as long as they go and if you don't get on the train early with the rest of them then it's really no fun anymore because it's just been referenced and pushed into the ground so much that it's just well this is dead now let's move on I to the think, next horse to beat i think for me i'm just too literal like even with the room when i sat down and watched that i just tried to understand what the director was making and i couldn't laugh at what everyone was laughing at I understand what's funny about the movie, but I still want to kind of see it through what the artist was trying to show. Well, explain me. to me what he was saying, because a lot of it seems like I have a girlfriend and she loves me and I get to make love to her. And then she leave me and then I kill myself. It's a wonderful American story of hope. That's yeah, that's what I think. Pretty much. <laughs> I, I yeah. think so. But again, I did not hit her. crazy person. I just want to understand things like I get Dennis Hopper like yeah, he, was, he was insane. He's a logical, crazy person. He's not, you know, a crazy person. Yeah, he's a drug crazy person. He's, he wasn't crazy. He has sense. He's not like somebody who's completely unaware of who they are as a person. And there's a big difference, I guess, like we were talking about uh, Richard Stanley. He's generally regarded as being insane, but I really relate to the guy. I really understand what he has to say. When you look at all the struggles of making the island of Dr. Moreau, the problem is the guy just had too big of a vision and he needed somebody to not let him get abused. They let him go off on these giant tangents and build these massive sets without thinking about the repercussions with a film crew, with actors, with being in Australia and the heat, being in the fucking jungle. They just kind of let somebody make uh, an empire and then took it away from him and never explained why. They never really told him what he did wrong. And then Richard Stanley's crazy because he was out living in the jungle. Well, maybe sometimes you got to go live in the jungle. Maybe that's just what people need. You got to go live in the jungle. Again, I wouldn't call him crazy. I'd call him one of the, the last sane men. Well, um, there are uh, there are people, you know, nobody wants to hear stuff like this, but I think there are people on this earth that are as enlightened as like the Buddha or Jesus. And you don't look at them in that same light because of social media or how much you can read. But guys like... uh. Albert Einstein, there's this German guy whose name I can't think of off the top of my head, and Richard Stanley that are just out there and their concepts are so different and so weird. They're judged and called insane because people can't comprehend what they're well, thinking. Yeah, of. but that's a completely different thing than like fucking Tommy was so. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to. Just He's that. clueless. That's the big difference is you, sometimes like Richard Stanley has too much information. I don't think Tommy Wiseau has any information other than fuck good, food good, death bad. 
Yeah, there's not a lot of substance. And, uh, you know, like, we're moving into more movies, and I want to go into Elves, but weirdly I feel there's more substance to Elves than there is with Tommy Wiseau and Elves is a goddamn nightmare mess. Um, Grizzly Adams and Nazi fucking Elves. Uh, The the, the Aryan race, the Supermen, are going to be tiny. What a fucking shit show of a crazy bat shit but they're also the nephilim that god punished the earth by flooding it with at the same time so they're just like all over the place with elves elves is one of those movies that you start <laughs> watching and you get about 10 minutes in and you have to stop and think like wait what what's going what on what's it what's I'm happening gonna tell you have fucking big tits and i saw that's your sister what the fuck is going on in this movie and the beginning of the movie has this ridiculous raw nature that sort of like panders out to this bizarre grizzly adams is just chain smoking in a library trying to find books about nazi occult l's and and none of it it's like an episode of jackass that somebody put a linear plot to you know what it made me happy in elves if they could have afforded a better puppet that you know move that wasn't just somebody holding onto the legs of this stationary thing and just jiggling around underneath the camera. What, what made the it worst ha- part about it? What would have made me happy with elves is if it would have just been called Elv, because there's not elves. There's not two or three of them. There's one. It's, it's one. an elf. Yeah, it's it's one, and they're very. It's like cue the winged serpent. There's even a part in the movie where someone corrects someone. Elves. It's not elves. Elves. And it's got this uh, like weird detective serious thrill to it where Grizzly Adams is a mall, a a former drunk mall Santa. But you slowly find out that before he was a drunk mall Santa, he was a drunk cop. And (laughs) so it just like has these layers like an onion that just keep getting worse. Like somebody's left the onion out for days and it's just getting more peeled back and nasty and smells bad. Like what I will say about Els is a it has a hell of a marketing campaign. The 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 box art, the poster for it is pretty good for the product that is contained within that box because the product itself is a pile of shit. But the the poster is pretty awesome. And I would also say that they were probably marketing still off of Gremlins, but in really no way is this a Gremlins ripoff film. I I, I was it's Christmas with Hank earlier that it's almost like they were cashing in on little rubber monster things not even so much gremlin says hey it's another little rubber monster movie for you to see so this might be a stretch like put like like dragged even further away from gremlins it's just one of these it's its own genre now at this point well this might be a stretch but i i feel some extra some alien knockoff especially with the design of the elf or the elf and how it's portrayed through the movie you only see its little wobbly legs or its arms and it's got a lot of that ridley scott alien feel to it so it's a multi knockoff okay okay i i get what you're saying now but just the way you're describing it well it's got kind of an alien feel to it in no way does this movie feel like alien or the special effects look like alien there's no comparison but how they kind of will shoot the arms of the little elves moving in yeah that and then it's like this kind of black gooey rubbery creature it looks nothing like you would consider an elf and they they go through these multi-line things of like you find out that Angels came to Earth and begot or begat with women and that God decided to spare Noah and the animals and that the elves are the offspring of. So they essentially the Nephilim or Nephilim, whichever way you pronounce it, mentioned in the Bible. And 
Then you skip to the 40s where the Nazis has been trying to use Roin magic to bring them. Back. So it, it's like, what? What, what? what is going on here? This, okay. You, but somehow you're still captivated. And Grizzly Adams, I know he can act. This must have been a hard time. They've given him a bad bleach job. He's reading off a fucking cue card somewhere off screen. You can watch his he eyes go back and forth. Yeah, he's 10 times more Coke smashed out. than I. Yeah, worse than I usually am on an episode of Death by DVD. But it's it somehow still manages to have this odd, sickening charm that you're like, well, no, now I want to. And it goes, it's got this, like, you could re-describe this movie. You can go to IMDb and look at its description. You can market this completely differently of a woeful story of incest and hate that brings forth the end of the world. Like, you could go a thousand different directions <laughs> with what Elves is, is about. That it, and it does. It's got this awful, heartbreaking incest plot Halfway through the movie, you get reminded that they're all Nazis. Almost everybody, there's this uh, pre-Nazi sect, and that seems hysterical. Like, what is this, your new Nazi symbol? No, it is the original one. It's a first one. And it has this, like, <laughs> deadpan, almost Richard O'Brien, like, psychotic, rocky horror nature to it. And But it's supposed to be really serious. It's not a funny movie. So, again, yeah. like... I, I missed the point with Troll 2, but somehow I get the point with Elves. Well, Elves What's wrong is, with it's, me? It's a serious, like, it's somebody putting together something incompetently. And I think they're trying to do it with a bit of a sense of humor. But at the same time, I think they took their, their plot seriously. Like, I think there were Nazis too many cooks in the kitchen. Magic to bring elf creatures to Earth. And they're the, the real master race. And this girl's grandfather is actually her father. And. But none it's of that's, like, very so far off. Weird. I mean, because the Nazis were practicing eugenics. They were a Gremlins ripoff. Well, that's where it gets weird, because all the subject matter is pretty legitimate. The Nazis were using black magic. Himmler was using black magic. And, well, I mean, that's such a loose term. Himmler was very interested in the occult, and a lot of Nazi papers have been discovered proving that they were trying to do ceremonies and that's a whole different research subject you can google on your own but that's and, a good movie plot well yeah that's where it, with their lower our monster movie that's where i feel there's too many cooks in the kitchen because you've got this great idea then you wrap it into the eugenic subplot of the guy got his because they even mention earlier in the movie you know your stepmother's a real bitch no that's my mom she had me when she was 16 the mother atrocious scene drowns a pregnant cat and it's very offensive and you find out later and i thought this was great that her nazi father raped her to have the master race daughter so she kills the pregnant cat it's not just mindless violence everything is tied off everything has a reason so you can understand why her character is the way it is but it's a goofy rubber monster movie and there's just so much effort and and heart and thought put into it and then it's like no, let's just get the weird little goofy rubber monster thing to attack Grizzly Adams and throw it at his face, and he'll still be smoking the entire—never a full cigarette. The man never has a full lit cigarette. It's always a butt that he's probably found on the fucking studio set because he couldn't afford—I don't know. I'm going off about Grizzly Adams, but the movie <laughs> has a weird amount of heart for something that's end product is— I, I, It's not shit, but it's—well, yeah, it is. Like, let's just call it what it is. Well, I it's mean, shit. I mean— <laughs> This was an era when the home video market was like hitting record fucking numbers of you just had to keep getting product and product and product going. So a lot of these weird direct to video companies were sort of like, I'm pretty sure this is an apex. 
A-I-P-I-X, Apex. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that. Um, I'm pretty sure. And they made so many bad action films throughout the early 90s that were always on video store shows, movies starring Billy Blanks and uh, Roddy Piper and like weird off-brand karate stars and just with not much effort behind them, kind of the same plots. Like, you know, okay, you got your... Uh, a pit fighter whose brother gets killed and you have to infiltrate the the mafia. It's just like, they're all kind of the similar plots, but there are thousands of these movies out there. Um, and elves gets mixed into it somehow. That's where I get off. Cause most Apex stuff was pretty generic. It's, and elves it's is studio. Not generic, if anything, I think it's, it's kind of like Lucio Fulci. He was a studio gun and he made Westerns and all sorts of different types of movies and, and nudie cuties and uh, like the psychic, those weird sexual thrillers before he really got into doing gore and was a studio gun that Jeffrey Mandel, he did, uh, did super force. He did cyber chick. He did firehead, uh, all these movies, these Billy blank ones, uh, which is funny. You've referenced him over the years quite a bit. And uh, I had no clue until you had, you know, referenced him as a cheesy '90s action star. I I come from the generation that he was just he the Tybo guy. Yeah, that that two in the morning after George Lopez's show went off on TNT. That you know that played from midnight to three a.m. You'd get the Tybo commercials over and over and over again. Billy Blanks Dog Pound. You get the little dog tags that said Billy Blanks if you ordered the DVD set. But uh, Jeffrey Mandel actually wrote this, so I think it's something that you know you do enough studio pictures, they threw him a bone kind of deal that. You finally get your breakout, and this is what he uh, he chose to do with his breakout. <laughs> I'm going to make a weird little Nazi elf movie. I got an idea, guys. I, it's not a good one, but I got an idea. And at least, you know, it's one of those things, though, that you can appreciate over. Like, I can take this and defend it over Troll 2 because it does have just so much watch. shit. Yeah, they shove so much into one thing that you can't help but kind of appreciate it and sort of relate to the characters or at least feel bad for Dan Haggerty. Somebody's well, got to feel bad for Dan. I can't help but equate it with a lot of the other junk product that was coming out at the time, like a uh, Fredel and Ray's produced movie, um, Jacko. Um, just there. I mean, there was making a lot of direct to video horror movies that were just really poorly put together. And um, God, I, I like uh, Jack Frost is another good example of that. Uh, a couple other movies like that where they're just like junk. They're a concept alone. Um, we're going to put out a product, but we're not going to try very hard. Here you go. And Elves feels like one of those to me. It just feels like junk that we're doing because we need to put out six movies this year. So and this can be one of them. It's going to cost us maybe a million to put together. So, I just uh, Uncle Sam, William Lustig's Uncle Sam. I put throw into the same category because I think that movie's pretty crappy. I just kind of see somebody that was a hired gun sitting down at a computer or a typewriter and just kind of coming up with as many ideas as possible that would sell. And, you know, you turn that in and somebody just said, OK, like that was the, the message yeah, back. Basically just, it. Yeah. OK, just not like OK, a Y, just an OK in a period. And they went with that. And that's that's kind of no, what happened. I didn't get the, it, they just got the K. They yeah. okay and yeah all right i guess that's we're gonna shoot this and we're gonna go ahead and do it elves is a fun one though for that matter and no matter where you you got wikipedia imdb rotten tomatoes no matter where you read the description of the movie it's always different and it always is just this provocative 
it's a Nazi scientific experiment elves movie. And that to me, that uh, describe every movie that way, I'd go see it. You got me with Nazi elves. You sucked me in, and I'm going to watch this from opening credits to ending now. This is Quentin Tarantino's going to do a new Star Trek movie. No, give me a Nazi elves movie, and I will hunt down the theater to see it in 35 millimeter in. I will go out of my way for that. Oh, yeah. Like, um, I discovered elves late in life, and I just, I have a little bit of love for it, but not not much. It's an oddity. It's putting it on a list with troll two and you know, me going against, I guess the public love of troll two. I had to pick something awful to, to sign Munchies my and elves. Yeah. Munchies siding with, well, out of everything on this entire list, what we're, we're going to get into here in a minute is my favorite. And to me really stands out and it also doesn't fit on this list at all. Yeah, so it, doesn't, <laughs> it was lumped in, um, on a few other lists that you look up on the internet of like, you know, gremlins type ripoffs well, and i was um, just like i want to talk about this movie so I'll just throw it in there even though it's not really gremlins anything maybe so well, hey tiny helps, creatures are popular the, the whole like creation of this episode was kind of hard because you came up with an idea and i just missed i think a lot of what the idea was in my initial list we were just working on the words tiny terrors and i think i gave you uh i said let's do the brood Child's Play and Ghoulies. And so I was just working on, you know, tiny things, something under four feet tall. And as it transformed into this Gremlins knockoff idea, I think the gate stayed on the list no matter what, just because one the way it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's I mean, and this is something we can come back and talk about on a lot of different shows with a lot of different reasons for. But the way this movie is shot, the way this movie makes me personally feel watching it, and I think if, I'm not going to say you have to be a certain age to get this, but if you relate to a little bit more 80s or early 90s mentality or you grew up in that era, it it has just, just this reflection of childhood that's really, really pure and just pleasant. There's something pleasant about the whole experience. Yeah, I mean, it's very Spielbergian, as, it, uh, as that term can be used. And what I love about The Gate is it does have a heart and... I've even like heard the writer talk about how mostly it's about everything you feared as a child, because I mean, the, the number one thing going on in the film is being left alone, like in your house, you don't know where your parents are and you're just well, look at the beginning alone at the house. Like when they discover the geodes and they dig in the backyard and um, the actual terror in tiny town, Steven Dorf is, upset and he's talking to his dad in bed and his dad explains you know your friend terry just lost his mother and he's just a little angry and he is he's just a little afraid so when he tries to scare you and you have to go back and think of when you were a child what were the most not even a child what are some of the most horrifying things that could happen to you losing your parents being alone no one can no one in their own heart can truly say they want to be alone it's always a fear dying alone Uh, Not just things like being afraid of the dark. You have a lot of Carl Jung adult concepts that make you and what makes this perfect for an adult audience over a child audience is it makes you reflect and maybe even see things as an adult that you don't fear anymore that maybe you should like loss or being alone. There's the the dog when he dies, just the statement between the two act or the two characters he said you know he was 97 in dog years he was old and they understand and you do too but there's still that feeling of loss 
Yeah, all the things in it that happen are mostly things you fear as a child or do as a child because what kid didn't just randomly dig a hole in their backyard? What, um, what kid didn't get told a ghost story about the house they moved into? Oh, there's a worker, like, they built into the walls. There's this corpse is still in there. My even- parents still have a pond in their backyard where I was 10 or 11 years old, and they convinced me and a friend that there was Confederate gold buried. We have a pond still to this day because I was a kid digging a hole. That's It's what kids do. You get <laughs> Somebody took memories and actually made something out of it instead of i mean and and like that's such a stupid statement because that's generally what any writer does but this person actually managed to fit themselves into the 10 year old's mindset like stephen king uh stand by me it's a story from the aspect of children and growth and change and like let's just look at the the rob reiner movie with the richard dreyfus narrative at the ending I'll never have the same friends I had when I was 12. It still comes from an adult point. It's wistful. It's a wistful look at the past, not currently in that childhood. Yeah, you're still a grown-up when you're looking at it. And when you watch The Gate, and if you look at it through the character's eyes, you manage to somehow be a child again. And what I mean by the 80s and 90s is, like, the best friend, Terry, he has a Venom back patch on. Like, he's a little metalhead nerd kid. He, it, that Sacrifix he was, band is amazing. I would buy that album in a fucking heartbeat. He is me and you. He definitely, we were little Terrys. And it's just, you can relate to it, and it's so pleasurable to be able to go back and just have that feeling and and to me even like that steven dorf man that's tiny look how cute he was he never got taller and so much of the movie works on like all those all those things you have as a child even like when um uh he glenn thinks his parents have come home he runs into his dad's arms, and then his dad is mad at him, which is scary. And then his face fucking melts in his hands, which is scary to him. And then ultimately, at the end of the film, he's left alone to deal with monsters, even fucking to the point of monsters hiding under the bed at one point in the film. Like, it just relates all things of fears of in your childhood, all kind of pressed together in a nice little Canadian package. What sets this aside from a lot of the other Gremlin knockoff movies is the creatures. Everything else that we've Amazing discussed, fact. yeah, we've everything else we've discussed tonight, uh, especially like the uh, the Beekler movies, has been a lot of puppets. Uh, I've made a lot of notion to uh, like Muppets and sort of gooey, kind of funky creatures. These were full grown men shot, and then uh, you have to explain how this works. I'm gonna fumble it's... this up. Well, I mean, they use a lot of forced perspective, which is basically... That's the word, yeah. Um, you, it's, you have to get a special lens for the camera to do it and stuff. But basically, anything you want to be small, you set far away in the background. Anything you want to be big, you have them close up to the camera, and you have to kind of arrange the focus with this lens. And the way they did the gate on a lot of this forced perspective stuff is you have like a, a set built way down that's the exact same set or at least half that set as your actors who are in the foreground, they did in the Lord of the Rings a lot too. Like they're not actually talking to like Frodo and Gandalf are sitting way apart from each other. And they're like just matching eye lines and having a conversation. Well, this is how Ray Harryhausen did most of his stuff too, isn't it? No, uh, Ray Harryhausen. I mean, he didn't do a lot of forced perspective. That was, I mean, he did a lot of stop motion. Uh, This is more of, it's kind of hard to explain when you don't know the logistics of it. Cause it's yeah, that's why I left matching, it up to you. 
align with your with your sets. Like you have to like match up and build your sets tiny, or actually they're kind of the same size, but you but you have to build some tiny sets for like the the little uh, monsters. There's a giant Terry foot that they built, to, so the people in the monster suits can interact with that when he's down in the hole. But then there's some shots of that are clo- like shot from behind his head, and the um, we are just splitting the focus to something that's really far away, and you're just kind of trying to match the uh, the actual ground. That's that's the hard part to explain of how you match those things because it's like it's instead of the term. Well, instead of the term match, you're almost marrying these two yeah. things. They're they're completely conjoining at one point, but not in the middle. So you all like the same focus field almost. It's you know, like split the focus you, field, but it focuses at all of it like it's in the same area. Well, the scene you just described is one of the best where they, they show something running p- past the head. So you have this foreground of what's going on, and it's almost a scene cut and added in, but you're still running on the same film. It's just shot. Two different things. It's just you're, you're you're watching two different things essentially, but it's on the same monitor, uh, and it is it's difficult to explain. But that's one of the things that makes this really fantastical because at the same time you have all these little creature knockoffs. So it does fit in with the age group of Gremlins knockoffs. It's still in that decade when that was really popular. But the whole concept they come from the little uh, geode that they find in the ground, and it, it it's just that fear that you're running off of the. Yeah, the concept of something in your house and just being a kid. I mean, do you remember having to go downstairs to the basement after dark and then after you'd finished it, you would run as fast as possible up the stairs because something was going to get you? That's the gate. That's that little thing somewhere in the dark. Weirdly for me, uh, and this is just, I guess, showing my age. When I was a kid, if it was dark, I couldn't stand going down the stairs, uh, all I could think of was the Garrett Graham scene in Child's Play 2, where Chucky grabs him from under the stairs and causes him to fall, and I'm constantly convinced that Chucky's living under the stairs, and I guess I've grown up to be Garrett Graham? (laughs) (laughs) You could be worse. Uh, I'll take it. You're beef. Um, God, I wish. But, yeah, like, the gay is kind of, like, and as a kid, I wasn't a huge fan of the gay. I followed it in Fangoria, it eventually came out and I watched it, and I was like, I was at like 10 years old. I was too hardcore for it. Just like, I've seen Hellraiser. What is this? All the kids come back at the end. They should have died. The dog should have stayed dead. Oh, like model rockets uh, to kill the fucking demon. That's stupid. But when you actually go into the concepts behind it, because through light and love, you have to destroy this demon. I mean, he's basically, it's a childhood love of his. It's a lot like Phantasm. Yeah, and I mean, it's that's what's important about it. It's not important that it's a model rocket or anything like that. It's just he's using a childhood device. He's, like, basically blowing up the evil around him using his toys. That's what is interesting about that concept. And I think it's this is a movie. It's a PG-13 movie that I've seen numerous times at this point, 20, 30, 50. I have no idea. But as an adult, I appreciate it way more than I did was, than when I was a kid. Because I was just always searching for that next big gory thing. And now at this point, it's like, yeah, you couldn't see your own childhood presented on the screen and for you to feel like it was your childhood. But when you watch it as an adult, it's like, oh, wait, that does feel exactly like childhood. It's the return. You get the return to that feeling. And I think that's what 
was the direction and the point behind making the movie is it was made almost like a time bomb that one day this is going to hit one day you're going to relate to this and it took the audience growing up for the most part to go back and reflect on those things and what's intriguing and, and really i guess timeless about the gate is Look at, I can't remember the name of the movie. We discussed this on a, a live episode of Death by DVD. But look at more recent teen, young children-themed movies. And I'm thinking of the one where they're at the summer camp and the aliens crash and they have to get to that. Yeah, I don't remember the name of that movie either. But it's I saw all, it and I don't remember it. But something like that doesn't have any, like modern movies that are relating to young children don't have any affliction. They don't have any heart about actually being a child or something that you can come back and cling to. And when you focus on the gate and you remember your childhood, even things that you just said, like you were so hardcore, you were into Hellraiser, you were into Reanimator, it wasn't enough. But when you come back to it as an adult, you remember, yeah, you were pretty hardcore, but if your mom and dad weren't home, you still would have been afraid. You still would have felt being alone yeah, the gate is dark with the, the fear of being left by your parents that you're just you're like you're going to be alone and you have to deal with all this horrible shit alone there's no one to run to well That's and inevitably though darkest aspect of it uh, that childhood grows into adulthood because you know in most cases you outlive your parents and that's something that i think is a part of the subject matter is growing out of your fear that your fear is tiny and it's small and that you can overcome it with things that are around you like taking the childhood toy like the rocket and using that as the motive to kill or get rid of whatever the fear or whatever the enemy is it's remembering who you are what's inside of you is what makes you and never lose what you were as a child never lose your hope never lose your creativity your freedom whatever and ultimately i mean what happens in the film other than he uses all of his childhood things all of his fears and he eventually conquers them it's about growing up that's what the gate is mostly about accepting things that are going to happen to you. your dog is going to die your mother is going to die and you just have to face it as it comes and you can only face it through love and light there you go that's the generalization of the gate right there in a fucking nutshell uh, it's funny saying it out loud. I've never really thought of how comparative it is to Phantasm, but just looking at the oh, yeah. very, very operal films, definitely. And that, too, you know, so many people are, uh, I guess, upset or want more of the Phantasm series and like Twin Peaks season three. It's all there. You can look at it a thousand different ways. You can look at it that Reggie has dementia or it's all been inside Michael's head and it's a bad dream since day one. Uh, and, and ultimately does not matter. Yeah, it's and like the gate where it all comes down to is you feeling something, you remembering something, you taking something away from what the story told you and running with it. Like there's fear and that's what runs on the gate. It's the fear of the unknown, not xenophobia, but just the fear of your parents dying, your dog dying. You don't know when it's going to happen. Your dog could run away. Your best friend could start acting weird and things are different. Life changes. It's just taking it and running with it well i mean even something um oh, i completely lost my train of thought what were you talking about as a like also with the gate what was the other movie you just fucking brought up phantasm yeah this phantasm, happened to me earlier yes. i had i had yeah, something I, I, fucking amazing brain, to say totally like, lost my fucking brain um 
and where the Phantasm series has gone, I mean, Coscarelli has always said it's about like the fear of dying and death and the weird things that surround it. But yeah, he and, loses his parents and his brother in the first movie, and then people by part five are wondering what's going on. The only person that's been well, there for him is old and dying. That's what's yeah, going on. It's about getting old and dying. That is what uh-huh. all of Phantasm about. It's just about getting old and dying. And if they continue to make them, it'll be about the literal directors and actors we're getting old and we can't make these anymore and we're dying. And this is the ending is except Don is Coscarelli. Mess, and then you die. Can that's, we talk about Don Coscarelli not aging? Like what? There's something not right about it. He's perpetually 45 years old. Uh, he's either a vampire or he actually is the tall man and has made the phantasm series as a warning about his home breed of alien species that eventually will come to Earth and wipe us out. Because Don Coscarelli, like every 10 years, starts looking better. Like, <laughs> like go back to even like phantasm, um, that era. Beastmaster era, he still looked like he was 45. I just don't think he ages. I think he's stuck looking like the same man. Even when he was in his 20s, he looks like he was 45. He's just a 45-year-old man. That's all there is to it. Don Coscarelli is immortal. Oh, he's a Highlander. That's oh, gotta okay. be it. Yeah, he's some sort of Highlander, and I believe it, though. And, oh, uh, the point of um, Phantasm is um, there's a quickening inside all of us. There can truly only be one, and it's a Michael Baldwin. Sorry, guys. That's the one. Or is it Reggie? Who is the dreamer? Don Coscarizzi. He's a vampire. I think that's about it. I'd say that would be good for this week's show. You got dick. I got dick? Oh, oh never mind. You met my usual call-off sign where I go, I got dick tonight. I got nothing. There you go. Not in your mouth, not around your face, but Alexander Nash, he's got dick. All right, I think the ashtray is full and the bottle's empty. of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Operating on Channel 13 by authority of the Federal Communications Commission. The programs broadcast by this station may not be used for any other purpose except exhibition at the time of their broadcast on receivers of the type ordinarily used for home reception in places where no admission, cover, and mechanical operation charges are made. The staff of WB now bids you a pleasant good night. They're all